Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Well, looky here. It's our fifth birthday. We're wearing our big boy pants. The Hustle turns five today. It's five years ago on May 5th, 2015, that we released our first ever episode. And uh, we're celebrating our fifth birthday, as we usually do celebrate a birthday, with a very, very special guest. And this year, I thought it would be really fun to hear from a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, a true legend, Jerry Harrison from The Talking Heads. Now, there's a little bit of bad news here. There's a little bit of bittersweetness here. Uh, This interview was done about a month ago. Prior to all of the coronavirus stuff, Jerry was getting together with the original guitarist from the Remain in Light album, Adrian Ballou, the legendary Adrian Ballou, and a band called Turquoise, and they were going to go on tour to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Remain in Light and play that album. Well, of course, that, like everything else, has been sidelined. Now, Jerry and I did this interview about a month ago, and by then, back then, I should say, I think it was probably still a possibility that this tour might happen. I suppose it still is. We don't really know for sure. The news out there that I keep hearing is not great for any concerts anywhere. But anyway... So that was the plan. So when Jerry and I had this conversation, it was kind of newly decided that things were going to be put on pause. I don't really know where they stand today. You probably should follow Jerry on Facebook to get those kinds of updates. But I still think this is a very beneficial conversation because we go deep on Remain in Light, which is one of the most important albums of all time, certainly of this great band's canon. We also talk about his solo career. We talk about some of the bands he produced, like Live and General Public. We talk about the Modern Lovers. Uh, I mean, this is a really interesting snapshot into the mind of a member of one of the most creative bands in history, the Talking Heads, Legends. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you will join with us in celebrating our fifth birthday. I wanted to kick it off with my favorite song off of Remain in Light. It's track one, Born Under Punches. So anyway, enjoy this conversation. If you don't know Remain in Light, please get your hands on it immediately. And if you're only on the fence or a a sort of a moderate fan of the Talking Heads and of Jerry's solo stuff, now's the time to go deep, all right? He, uh, I don't remember where he called me from. I think the Bay Area. I think he lives in the Bay Area. I think that's where he was. Anyway, enjoy the conversation. All right, so I got to kick this off. You don't know that I'm going to be a, a weird stalker here for just a minute before we get into the formal interview. You and I have met before, and I'll tell you how. We've, we've met three times, and I'll tell you how. So back in the early 2000s, I worked for Tower Records in their corporate offices. And uh, so I used to get free tickets to concerts all the time, and I went and saw The Strokes at the Warfield one night mm. in San Francisco. And I was walking out and you were in the back of the room and you and I started talking for a minute. And right. it just so happened that earlier that day, Warner Brothers had come into our offices at Tower to play us the music that was going to be coming out in the next quarter. And one of the albums they played for us was the Von Bondies album that you had just produced. Right. With Come On, Come On. And that album is killer.
And so you and I had this long conversation about your production and career and that album in particular. And I, I think you were hoping to work with The Strokes or maybe you're just a fan. I'm not exactly sure. So I, I, Actually, what I was was I was peeved that Steve Robofsky, who I knew really well because he had been briefly was a road manager for Talking Heads, was instrumental in signing the Strokes and their favorite band when they referred in interviews with the Modern Lovers. Oh, I could see that. And that he didn't put two and two together and say, well, I know a former Modern Lover who is a, you know, a music producer who would probably be well suited for you. Yeah. And that's what I, that was what I and I did think that I think that yeah. we, you know, not that I think they made a bad album or anything like no. that. And obviously, their first record did very well for them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. So we uh, we chit chatted in the back of the room there for a little while, and uh -huh. then shortly after that, I saw David Bowie in Berkeley at that theater. I forget the name of that's actually part of Berkeley High School. And you were sitting a couple of rows ahead of me, and Tom Waits was sitting a couple rows over. And you walked past me, and we kind of did one of those, oh, hey, it's you. And probably yep. because we had just talked. And then the last time, and this was the fun time, I went to South by Southwest one year, and the hot ticket that year was this band Editors. And right. uh, my wife and I had won VIP passes to the whole shindig. So we were, got into any show we wanted. And we, I love editors. And so we went to that show and you were just running around kind of frantically. I don't know what it was. And it, you kind of looked at me, but it didn't register. And I'm, but anyway, so I remember that night in particular because it looked again, like you were trying to maybe make something happen or you were in charge of the thing or what, I don't know what it was, but you looked kind of running around frantically. I was hoping, I was interested in, in trying to work with the editors. I thought they were terrific. Yes, me too. Me too. So anyway, that's our lineage right there, Jerry. The first two times I wanted you to know. Yes. Um, okay. So I'm guessing, like everyone else, this Remain in Light 40th anniversary tour is on hiatus like everything else that's going on in the world right now, correct? Yes. Yeah. What a shame, man. What a shame. Well, if, you know, it may be, if, I don't think it's any big deal that if it's, from my point of view, whether the shows are in the spring or the fall of this year is, I think it's going to, you know, I mean, I think this is this sort of shutdown of being able to go to concerts is going to be, is going to take a toll on a lot of bands that live really, you know, support themselves yeah. by touring, not to mention promoters and, you know, even big boys like Live Nation. It's like a very, you know, try, I, I'm happy to see, how many of the festivals have found a way to reschedule in the fall, which is mm -hmm. most of them so far have done. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's going to, in the end, as long as this is finished by then, yeah. which no guarantee that it will be. Yeah. 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 I mean, I though, if you look at any of the scientific data, the more you flatten the curve, the longer it goes. Mm. I know. Successful at flattening the curve so that we only have, so that we could kind of keep the number of people requiring ventilators, which I think were, it would be remarkable if, mm -hmm. with, with the lack of preparation that I think is taking place in the United States for that to happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the world is upside down and um, it's affecting 
It's affecting so many, I mean, it's affecting everything, you know this, but so the, there is a possibility if everything gets set straight again in this world that you can, this tour will go back on just being postponed, hopefully till later in the year. Yeah, I mean, this was, yes, exactly. Okay. And, you know, that's kind of the plan as of now. I mean, since this has been very much largely going to music festivals, as, as the festival started picking up the show, then we started getting individual dates. Mm -hmm. I think festivals were an ideal place for for this to be done, mm -hmm. and having sat in with the str the String Cheese, who I produced two of their records, most recent records, and then also after I produced Turquoise, sitting in with them and things like that, it became obvious to me that that audience was a very very receptive audience mm -hmm. to, particularly that 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 period of Talking Heads music, yeah, and. Many of those bands will end up because they, you know, they often, <laughs> they play for hours sometimes. Yeah. They'll do multi-shows, so they'll have, you know, 300 songs in their potential set list or something like that. Mm -hmm. and, and so very often some of them are talking hit songs. So I always had thought that there was something unique about the band that was put together for Remain in Light. Mm -hmm. Nothing away from the band that did Speaking in Tongues or the Stop Making Sense band. I mean, you know, first of all, it was our first crack at having a big band. Yeah. And having both Adrian Ballou and, and Bernie Worrell, who are such extraordinary musicians, join us. I mean, and I don't mean that to, you know, again, once again, I'm not trying to take anything away from Steve Scales to let mm -hmm. McDonald or Busted Jones, but. Adrian is a completely unique guitar player, uh, and he and I are good friends for years. I mean, we, mm. not only from the period of, say, when he worked with Talking Heads, but um, it was actually, I went, it was me who went down to the Mud Club and found him and said, like, why don't you come up and play on Remain in Light? Mm. Mm. And, really? Yeah. And I hired that entire band. So really? It together. So we had we had a connection. He played on a few of my solo records, but then I grew up in Wisconsin, and my wife and I are both from Milwaukee. And mm. I, as of my mother, my father passing away suddenly, and my mother having cancer, I started spending maybe half of my time in was in Milwaukee, and then the other half in New York. And I and ended up finding these recording studios there and ended up producing the Bodines and mm -hmm. the Violent. It was actually quite a sort of vibrant music scene in Milwaukee in the mid 80s and yeah. mid to late 80s. And, um, and you know, and it was, I found it and I and had inherited a house and I quite liked some of the studios, partially because they were just less expensive. Yeah. You had more time. As a, it was really good for me as a producer because I could take more time with bands. And when you're trying to produce bands that are, it's either one of their maybe their first album and things like that. A lot of times they need some time to experiment, and mm. it wasn't quite the same as perhaps it had been at one point where everyone came in right off of and could just play the album in like a week or something like yeah. that. Where it worked out really, really well. And one of the studios was down in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, which had just an, you know, it, it had the world's largest SSL board and just this mm -hmm. unbelievable amount of equipment. 
and that it had been it was owned by a diamond dealer from Chicago. But they had they had trouble getting people to go there. So eventually, Adrian, and I think that this good friend of his moved there. He had, mm. Adrian had really? been living in Champaign, Illinois. And so he moved there, and I used to go down and and mix albums there, and sometimes produce albums. I mean, yeah. the bulk of the Crash Test Dummies record was done there. And, really? <laughs> wow. And Throwing Copper was mixed there. Oh and, boy! And a lot of Walk on Water was hmm. was mixed. Some of it was mixed there, and a lot of it was recorded there. So we would see each other regularly. You know, so there is this sort of history between us that mm -hmm. is, ends longer than that the period of when he was with, with Talking Heads. Yeah, that's interesting. I, so I thought, so it was in my mind was that combining with a band such as Turquoise and having worked with the String Cheese Incident, they of course also came mm -hmm. to mind would be a really good way because they were a big enough band who were already familiar with Talking Heads material mm -hmm. and that adding Adrian and me, we could try to rec recreate the feeling of, of that first tour. Yeah. And there's a YouTube video from Rome, 1980, an Italian TV station shot that captures what we're going for. Another one from the Capitol Theater that's actually black and white. Oh, interesting. You'll see how the similarities, but also the uniqueness, uh, uh, with Stop Making Sense, but you'll also see a certain uniqueness about it that is different. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, I thought that that would be really fun to do. And, yeah. I thought, and I also thought that since obviously Talking Heads is not reforming, is like, what would, what would fans enjoy? Yeah. And I thought, this I thought. Well, here's a, it's a kind of a concept, you know. Yeah. It's a, it's a concept tour. You mm -hmm. know, we're trying to recreate as as closely as possible in a modern setting, and, and as simply as possible, what we did back then. Yeah. And so, I mean, obviously, Dave is not going to be singing, so that's a huge difference, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. And but I think that we can, you know, there's a there's a a feeling and a vibe to the to the way the music is that's really happy and high energy and it's so joyful you know i i, I recommend 
to you and to the listeners of, of this podcast that they go check out that video because that's our goal is to okay we're all of course Andrew and I are like you know decades older than we were then. <laughs> So yeah. whether we can be as high energy, I right. doubt. But right. I think that the, we're going to be uh, supplanting it with the nine-piece band yeah. that is turquoise. Okay. Uh, you know, and they also ha- already have background singers, and they yeah. already—they're very um, skillful musicians. Unfortunately, we've we've only done one rehearsal so far, where we um. rehearsed this fall, and we were both supposed to be doing them this week, but obviously, yeah, we can't. Yeah. So, um, yeah, um, a bunch of work. There's a bunch of work for us to do before we go on tour. Right. I think it's going to be really great, and Good. I think that, I'm sure it will. I also Let's think see. that it will be in the festival atmosphere. What's interesting about it is it's is it's music that you could hear in the middle of the afternoon as well as at night. It doesn't mm-hmm. rely upon a light show. It doesn't rely upon being absolutely close to the band. To get the joy out of it. So I think this is a good way to reintroduce it to people. Mm-hmm. Maybe, wow, that was really good. And like, that was like, I like, I really like, we'll come up with another concept that's slightly different and then do that. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and if this is a success, maybe there, you know, there's nothing stopping you and this band or some yeah. collection of people going out and doing other similar type shows. You know, the thirst is there. I mean, you hear it better than anybody that people are just dying for something of the talking heads to be back out there, you know? Yeah, and, I'm, you know, I mean, David's been doing his tours where he does lar- largely a, g- a good portion of the, of the, of the show is mm-hmm. music from the t- talking heads. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it's not like people have not had any, but it, it, his things are, his is different yeah. than what it will be. Yeah. And, you know, he has, you know, he has his show on Broadway, which is, you know, I saw it when it was traveling around, so... Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to seeing it on Broadway, but I haven't yet. But I did see it here, and it was um, it was really beautiful. Yeah. Well, I think that anyway. I think he has a unique show, but I think ours is going to be. Uh, it's going to have a little bit of a different focus. I believe it. Great. And it's certainly, most certainly, is not going to be this incredibly designed light show because. If we're going to be playing in the afternoon, it's useless, and we can't you can't do it in a festival situation anyway. So it's all going to, it's going to be all about the what you're hearing, the music. Yeah. Good. Okay. The joy of it. You know, I want to dive into the Remain in Light period a little bit. What I mean is that it I'm it always strikes me whenever I go back and listen to all the Talking Heads albums, what a drastic evolution it was for you guys to go from the band that's doing seven, the '77 album this very stripped down post-punk type thing into this Afrobeat, African rhythm, Felikuti influenced group. And it just, no one else makes that, progresses that way as well as you guys did. And I'm curious, whose idea was it to go as African as you did? It's so good. But was that an Eno influence? Was it David Burns? vision was it the whole band really warming to that kind of music what sparked that i personally think that you know various members of the band were listening to different african groups but i i what i really think is that when we did e zimbra on fear of music which there's an interesting story to that as well oh. because... <laughs> 
we That's were, my favorite Talking Heads song. So please say it. But we were putting. Me. We were we were at Atlantic Records, listening to all of the mixes of the record, and we were about to embark on a tour of New Zealand and Australia, and then we were going to fly to Europe, and we had a week off, and then we were doing fest- festivals in Europe, and. At the end of listening to this, I kind of said, well, since we've just listened to this, can we listen to, I don't know what it was called at this point, but, you know, it would be like song 12 or something like this, because <laughs> mm-hmm. there were no vocals on it. And we played it, and everyone sort of looked at each other and said, this has to be on the record. Nice. And so Chris and Tina went on to Europe from Perth, and David and I flew back from Perth, Australia for 30 hours, Mm. get back to New York. And Eno then had the idea of doing the Hugo Ball poem, which provided this sort of nonsense lyrics. Mm -hmm. And we went, recorded the vocals to that, and then mixed it. And then we went to the mastering of the record. And then David and I got on a plane and flew overnight Denmark, and we played Pink Pop the next day. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah. But I think that there was a recognition when we finished, when about that song, when we finished it, that that should inform the direction we were going to go in for the next album. Mm. You know, then we also came up with, when we did Remain in Light, that we would record the record one, basically one part at a time and that we were going to write largely in the studio, which is which means that the you know the tracks are incredibly clean because yeah. most nobody else was playing. So we went down to the Bahamas and Red Davies, who had been the engineer on more songs about buildings and food, was going to be the engineer. Eno was not going to be involved, hmm. and somehow he started to get word of what we were doing, and then he showed up. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure of exactly what, but he, then Red Davies didn't kind of understand what we were doing. And I also think that he had, it was moving away from being an engineer for Brian Eno and being a producer on his own right. He had produced Dire Straits. Mm-hmm. And so he didn't like being second fiddle. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it was on more songs about buildings of food. So he ended up leaving the project. And we kind of stumbled along for a few days because Eno doesn't really know how to be an engineer. <laughs> I can see that. Distant in the Bahamas was pretty inefficient as well. Mm-hmm. So then Dave Jordan, who had worked on My Life in the Bush of Ghosts with, with Brian and David, came in and he was the engineer on the record. Okay, okay. Is that what sort of led to the separation then with Brian Eno? Because, I mean, you guys know you go on this hiatus for a little while, and then it sort of becomes, it initiates the commercial period that people consider of Talking Heads. You're getting played on the radio a lot more. These are pop songs. They're clean. They're slick. Was that intentional to go that route? The idea of of not working with Eno anymore I, I think that became mutual. I think we've, uh, we, I think oh. by this point we've learned so much because the process of making Remain in Light merged very often, sometimes playing, writing, 
recording, everything got kind of smushed together because it was a made-in-the-studio album mm-hmm. and composed-in-the-studio album. So there was none of this idea that you were out in the room and just performing it mm. for someone else to capture. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the creative process was a, was across the entire the gamut of every tool that was available to you between instruments to playing ability to the studio. So I think that we started to feel that we could do this our, ourselves. Okay. You know, I think we offered to Brian that we would do an album if he wanted to do his own solo record, that we, we would do a similar record and be the band, but he didn't... He, he sort of went off on in the, ver, in the uh, direction of music for airports right now. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay. And so I think that he had come up with something else that was totally his own. You know, we all loved Fellas Records, really. Yeah. And, the best. And, you know, when, you know, David and Brian, because it, when they had done My Life in the Bush of Coast, obviously, there were, uh, again, it all came out of basically doing Yuzimbra and how successful mm. that came is that this was just on everybody's minds. Mm. Mm. And so when we came back a year later, it was still on our minds. Yeah, and people had listened to more variety of African records and more things like that. I think one of the most important things that separates, or particularly separates, say, Remain in Life from, say, Paul Simon's Graceland, is that because we played all the, we played everything, is that it went through the filter of our limitations. Ah, uh, interesting. <laughs> you know, it was not like we hired people that were doing this themselves all the. You know, grown up doing this, and this is how they played. You know, rather it was we were influenced by people who did mm-hmm. that, mm. and but we wrote our own parts, and we wrote our own, and we played them the way we could. We played, yeah, a certain kind of, uh, or well, certainly band coherence that you wouldn't find, you didn't find in, a, in an album like Graceland or. Okay, I could see that. Yeah, you know, where I... people have you, you know. Paul Simon's a, a solo artist who has mm-hmm. very often gone and used established groups of various kinds as co-writers or as inspiration. Yeah, he worked with he did that with Los Lobos and he did it with you know and he did it down mm-hmm. in Hill as well. So yeah, Lady Smith, Black Mambazo, so true. Um, was there anyone? I've always been curious in this these days cultural appropriation is kind of this buzzword it actually kind of makes me mad because i don't i think it's wrong i don't i don't agree with the idea that you vict you villainize white people for trying to emulate uh, cultural music or music from other cultures and make it their own what what else is influence if not that very thing right there but where at the time were there other was anyone ever saying you're a bunch of white New England art school kids. Are you sure you should be making Afrobeat music? Was anyone ever telling you, you know, filling your head with these things? No, no. Good. Okay, good. No, I mean, I think that when Talking Heads came out, no one could understand what was our influence. <laughs> True. <laughs> and, and then when we did Take Me to the River, it was like, oh, they're, in, they're influenced mm. by R&B music. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And so you could say that's cultural appropriation. If you well, I um, don't, but some people do. That's why I wondered if there were heightened senses even back then on that kind of stuff. But I'm glad there's not. 
not particularly. And, okay. you know, obviously we've just gone through, you might say, the rebirth of interest in the blues because of particularly British musicians, but mm-hmm. also the Paul Butterfield Blues Band and, and other American bands, you know, Can't Heat and uh, mm-hmm. Blues Project and stuff like that, basically. I mean, very often, of course, in some ways, doing and what's interesting is having now produced Kenny Wayne Shepherd, how much more attuned I am to the nuance of the blues mm-hmm. than I was when I first got interested in, say, John Mayall and the Blues Breakers. And so when I've gone back and listened to some of the records that I loved back when I was in high school mm-hmm. <laughs> at the beginning of in college, I go, I still really like this, but it's not really played right. It's not yeah. right. It's not quite right. Uh-huh. Like the the shuffle is wrong. Anyway, have you seen the movie that I was involved with called Take Me to the River? No, and I didn't know about it until getting ready to talk to you, and I didn't have time to fit it in before we chatted. So anyway, you'll see in that movie, there's like an amazing scene where Charlie Musselwhite, who of course is white, mm-hmm. he understands the blues, really understands the blues. Mm-hmm. There's a guitar player who is trying to play a part, and... Charlie goes, well, you know, here's he's a harmonica player, Charlie, right? Mm-hmm. And he goes, well, here, let me, let me, can I just have the guitar for a second? And you hear him play essentially the same part, but it doesn't sound the same at all. And that's kind of what I'm talking about, is like, it's the dynamics and the degree of the shuffle, how, the, sort of the deepness of the shuffle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And all of these nuances that sort of, I mean, English blues often was playing it much faster too. So, a lot of things got cha- got a little bit changed. Um, yeah. So anyway, we've just been through that. I mean, that was you know, I mean, Tony Hetz is, I don't know, ten years later than sort of the peak of when, you know, starting with the Rolling Stones, yeah. but you know, getting to the Yardbirds and Cream and, but you know, I mean, so, right. so, many, so many bands from there that were like in the sort of sure late 60s, early 70s. And of course, the African-American musicians that played were authentic then, they go, man, if this means that more people are buying our records true. and coming to oh, this is the best thing in the world that could have happened to us. Yeah, true, true. I think that all of those musicians were so respectful of the people that they were emulating mm-hmm. that the idea of calling it appropriation I find to be... Well, I think sort of missing the point. I and, totally agree. Totally and agree. I, I mean, I you know, I think that there's a lot of current thinking that the basic point may be true, but the do- the dogmatic nature of how mm-hmm. they try to apply it ends up missing the the feeling that people have when they're doing it. And, That's true. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I recommend everyone to go see Take Me to the River because it is a fantastic movie about Memphis music. Good. I'll check it and out. It, and it's about bringing R&B legends, many of which were quite elderly, into the studio with people associated with Memphis, or li- or like, but like often rappers, mm-hmm. and they have no idea. Some of them grew up in the same neighborhood, and they, but they have no idea of the history. They have no idea of what 
that they, you know, some of them don't even know that Stax records ever existed uh -huh. under the young condition. <laughs> and, you know, we recorded it at, at Willie Mitchell's studio mm. in Memphis, and which is where I'll, you know, and it was really interesting. We, I went in for this session with uh, William Bell. Oh, nice. Which is featured at the movie. You know, this 16-year-old this kid is playing drums, and I'm going... Oh, there's the Al Green drum sound. <laughs> and, you know, it's wow. because it's set up in the same place that Al Jackson yeah. used to play the Al Jack the, 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 uh, the drums. Yeah. With the same mics and the same and the same everything, all those things. Yeah. And it's like, ah. Yeah, that's where it comes from. Isn't that amazing? Anyway, so that that's sort of how Remain and Light you know, came to be, I mean, there's... Let me, uh, I want to get to your solo career, too, here in a second. I have some questions about that. One last, I think, t Talking Heads question, and this is probably a super nerdy one. I've, not always, I've heard of some rumors that the Naked album was actually more of like a David solo album that you guys, by I mean, by that point, it's near the end of your partnership, so you, I don't know how involved you guys are, but is that true that Naked was more or less a David solo album with you guys just sort of doing a little bit here and there? Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Good. Okay. Um, I would say the closest thing to, I mean, Little Creatures and True Stories, the songwriting was entirely David. Mm -hmm. And because really Little Creatures were the outtake songs that he was writing for True Stories. Oh. Funny how it's actually better than True Stories. Yeah, no kidding, I agree. <laughs> yeah. uh, we actually recorded the basic tracks for True Stories while we were mixing Little Creatures. Hmm. And, um, Would never guess. Because all the songs were written by that point. So it was actually really efficient use of the studio. We would, Eric Thorngren, or E.T. Thorngren as he likes mm. to call himself, was mixing. 
and we'd go rehearse a song in the main room. And when he'd have the mix ready, we'd come in and listen to it. And then he had another part of the board set up so he could do pretty, you know, we were, had to be efficient about channels to be able to mix and record at the same time. And he would, and we'd go, okay, well, we're ready to record a basic track. Then we stopped the mix, <laughs> mm-hmm. wait for the mix to end, depending on where we were. And then we would record the basic tracks to, to uh, True Stories. Mm. We recorded all of those, and then it ended up that we didn't finish it until a year later. So actually, Naked was Chris and Tina and I wanting to not do the same thing we had done on Little Creatures and True Stories. It was to somewhat revive the spirit of Remain in Light and and Speaking in Tongues, where there was uh, the songs had us was more the the composition of the music was more of a group interaction interesting okay and then we all knew wally batteru although oh, Chris, he's great Chris and Tina knew him best because they both had condominiums near compass point hmm. right across the hall from each other that it were built oh i don't know i think they weren't built when we first went there but i think they might have been done when we when we went there for true stories i'm not sure i mean probably we went there for remain in light mm-hmm. so you know there was this idea okay well let's go to paris which will be fun and let's you know let's do various things but let's also compose in the studio yeah. and let's ask wally to join us that's great that he had friends that he brought in that were fantastic and i i knew fella fella's management Actually, one of them actually ended up dating this this girl who I'd gone out with. Is that Tarquin? It was this Armenian guy. No. Who lived, who lived on a, a, a barge. And he had this other partner who was dating the girl who I knew, who had gone down to Fela's compound in Nigeria uh, just a little bit before Fela's mother was thrown out the window by the army. Oh, okay. Anyways, he brought... He, um, he connected me to Maury Conte, who I brought in for that record. So that was a much more of a group a group album, really. Good. Okay. You know, David sort of taken over the largely t- taken over the lyrics with you know an occasional maybe. But things were a little bit more open in the songwriting. I I co-wrote some songs with with David for Fear of Music. Um, oh. But then after remain in light and you know the complication of trying to assign songwriting credits between everybody and including Eno at that point mm-hmm. made um, kind of complicated that, that. And, and it didn't help the it also complicated the um, politics of the band too so anyway yeah. and interestingly David says that a lot of the re- songs that he wrote for Ray Momo that he had played for us ahead of going in to do Naked and my god I'll tell you it didn't it didn't seem that way to me (laughs) (laughs) when I heard Ray Momo I went I never heard this before I mean I like this a lot but but it just shows how things change when you finish (laughs) yeah yeah no kidding okay to wrap up the talking head stuff before we get I want to get into your production career and everything give us an example of a song that we haven't already talked about that you are particularly proud of 
tell me a song where you're like, you know what? I came up with this one part or, you know, this one track, I did this thing or I wrote this lyric or I've just always liked it and no one talks about it. Whatever it is, tell us a moment you're particularly proud of. Well, I certainly think that in some ways Take Me to the River is one of the only songs where what I'm playing is truly the dominant instrument all the way through the song. I could see that. interesting about Taming the River is I never listened to the Al Green version before we recorded it. Mm. David taught me the song, so it was going through a filter. Mm -hmm. And having now played this song with the Hodges brothers, who played on the original with Al Green, so Mm -hmm. with Teeny and uh, Reverend Charles and Lester, who are just unbelievable musicians. Teeny has now passed away. But I, you know, for these shows that we would do around the movie Take Me to the River, we would play Take Me to the River. And there, the whole sense of the chord changes, the beat, is all on the upbeat all, all the way through their version. And our version is more right on the beat in this relentless mm-hmm. drive and it is t- it's really completely different. And I think that some of that may have uh, had to do with how Chris plays drums. But I think some of it has to do with my understanding of what how the, how the beat of the song went, getting it from David, who had gotten it from the album, mm. the original. But none of us going back and studying the original again, and then, you know, sort of creating our own version. And... You know, as a perfect example is don't don't study too much, you'll wreck it. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, and, and Take Me to the River also, what was interesting is when we released it, Brian Ferry and Foghat released versions of Take Me to the River, I think the same month. Really? <laughs> and I think that it was sort of a competition about whose would be successful. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we won. You won. Also, is the begin. It was the first time we really got major airplay, and it was on AM radio. So it goes back to the time when AM was still the biggest force in music promotion. Mm -hmm. FM had not taken off yet. So, you know, it's having now. Now that we've gone through Mm -hmm. so many different iterations of what, like how you listen to music or. 
Yeah. And, you know, the it, or influence people about music. It goes all the way back to the days of AM radio. Oh, fascinating. Um, okay, let me ask you about your solo career. I um, I had Dolette McDonald on here a few months ago. She's about, just about the nicest lady in the world. We've become kind of friendly. And I reached out to her to ask if she had any questions that she wanted me to ask you. And she didn't. But a DJ friend of hers uh, wanted me to make sure that I asked you about The Red and the Black, your first solo album, which is he and I had the same question, which is, did you intend to make a fantastic funk album? I mean, it's it, it never ceases to amaze me just how diverse everyone in the Talking Heads is when it comes to the music they choose to make on their own. And mm. you making this fantastic funk record at that time, is that what you were setting out to do? Were you influenced by P-Funk? What was happening? Well, first of all, it was I had never been the singer before. Yeah. So it was a great challenge for me to a write the lyri- write lyrics and b to be the singer. And in fact, I think one of the reasons that there's a fairly long delay between the Red and the Black and Casual <laughs> Gods is me trying to get to be a better singer. Really? <laughs> and I had produced Nona Hendrix. She was the first person I ever produced. So she was a good friend. Yeah. And but I had been hanging around in New York during the period between Fear of Music and Remain in Light with Busta Jones. Mm. And that's how I met Bernie Worrell. And, but Busta and I became real. We had this little group called The Escalators that had a EP that came out in, uh, in Canada. Kind of also fascinated by the idea of 
different time signatures and whether or not you could maintain, <laughs> you might say, funkiness across being in a different time signature. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had these tracks, but I had become such good friends with Bernie and I mean, and Adrian, they both played on, on Red and Black. Mm-hmm. And then I had found uh, Yogi Horton through Busta, who played on the Catherine Wheel and then also played on my solo record, who was such an incredible drummer. And he went on to play with Luther Vandross, and sadly, mm-hmm. he suicide. Oh. By actually jumping out of a window, which is... Oh. Um, but he was just an incredibly... Not only funky, but just solid. And, you know, this is not to take anything away from Chris, who I just think is one of the most wor- wonderful drummers in the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, there can be more than one. And Yogi yeah. Yogi was just a- spectacular. And I ended up helping Buster produce his record, but he didn't help me with mine. I oh. can't recall why. But Nona got very involved with it, and she helped me on the singing and helped me on writing some of the lyrics. And I ended up working with Dave Turd, who had done Remain in Light. So that you might say the feeling of Remain in Light was in the air still. Uh, got it. That makes sense. But I had been working on for a number for some time using a four-track cassette um, deck, kind of interesting music that I actually I ended up just transferring from the four-track cassette deck to 24-track. Because some of the time I just couldn't find a way to replay it. Mm. Sometimes people would learn those the parts I had done, and we would just track them. But at other times, there was just there was something that I had caught. Sometimes, of course, it was re- like a microphone re- catching reflections within a room, mm. and it was uh, it didn't matter that it was noisy or it, I wanted that feel. Yeah, I think that the musical experimentation on that record is remarkable. It is. Uh, you know, I think that Adrian Ballou, I think some of the solos he played on that are some of the best he's ever done. Yeah. I think The Great Curve is one of his finest solos. I do too. She loves the world and all the people in it. She shakes them up when she starts to walk. She is the only person. I was just thinking that same thing. That's a masterwork. Yeah. And I think that what he played on Worlds in Collision and the uh, New Adventure, is that what it is? It's like the kind of Arab one. Yeah. Are, are just, you know, spectacular. It is. 
areas of yesterday's agreements remember the divisions of east and west when three worlds fought for your heart and everyone is a collaborator there are only levels of cooperation and there comes a time when what was wrong becomes right and there comes a time when friendly dogs begin to bite stories like that. I'm watching TV a Saturday night. What do I see but a middleweight boxing fight? A right spot here, a left hook there. Two in one combination, a standard fare. One fighter hits tries, they highly shuffle. Yes, I'll change the channel, then it's just another scuffle. It reminds me of me and you. It reminds me of what we used to do. TV rerun, I watch the game steam. The jacket on, he looks like Munchie. I gave a thing about a Natalie Wood. She sure was looking awfully good. That rebel man looks so cool. Hearts of blood, but don't be fooled. Cause in the end, he still lost his fight. Tough luck, sonny, life's not nice. To remind me. Of me and you It reminds me Of what we used to do It reminds me Of high school Reminds me of high school But the What you would consider the A part And the B part, part, part Is reversed In the two songs mm. But it's, it was this weird drum beat that Yogi Horton came up with. That is just, uh, it, it, it's a, every time I play it for drummers, they'll go like, I want to do this song. It's like, unless I've been to music school, they go like, oh, shit, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, good. Okay. Um, I would encourage anyone who doesn't know to go check out Jerry's solo albums. Those they're diverse and they're fantastic. And uh, um, especially, I I, I, I think I like Red and the Black best too, just because of that funk element. It's so good. And the people who play with you. Um, yeah. Okay, I got I to gotta ask one question, I guess, about the Modern Lovers. I mean, we could do a whole separate thing on them. But uh, what are your thoughts when you look back on the Modern Lovers? I mean, it's one album, basically, that was released years after the fact. And uh, it's... It's a piece of history to people who find it and discover it and talk about it. Did you stay close to Jonathan Richmond? Do you still talk to him at all? I actually just made a record with him last year. Really? 
It's on Blue Arrow Records out of Cleveland. It's not. It's not on any streaming service in the world. Wow. It's sort of like you've got to go buy the LP. Yeah. And if you get the LP, they give you a place to download the music. <laughs> huh. Oh, and it's really unique and wonderful. And we were about to record in a couple of weeks a follow-up, but because of the coronavirus, that too mm-hmm. is being uh, is being delayed. Wow. But yes, I have. Um, I mean, years went by when I didn't. We didn't see each other. Mm-hmm. He lived in California for a long time, and I lived on the East Coast. And but not out of any enmity, just out of sort of what you know. Okay. You know, most times when he would come through town on a tour, I'd see him. Yeah. Uh, the Modern Lovers, I think, to me, we invented punk rock. I, was I, I think that, too. that you know, with great influence by the Stooges and the, and the Velvet Underground, but somehow I think that the Modern Lovers were the first to kind of say, if you have if you have an idea that you want to express, no matter your ability on your instrument, you can there's a you can find a way to express it. Mm-hmm. And that's the spirit of punk is that you'll by any means necessary you'll find a way to express the emotion and the idea you have and to keep it short, keep mm-hmm. it simple. Mm-hmm. And I think that the modern lovers were the, you know, with with the antecedents of the Stooges and the Velvet Underground, yeah. was what really then informed the Ramones and you know you know with with you know that and other things you know mm-hmm. very influenced by Phil Spector and sort of you know Tommy Erdelie. but and you know I mean the Sex Pistols co- covered Roadrunner as did Joan Jett so mm-hmm. you know it, it's. It's interesting because, you know, we recorded the record in 1972, but it didn't come out till 1976. Yeah. Seeing all the music you just made start become popular, or at least part of the zeitgeist, when you guys were doing it four years earlier, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Also, it was very much a period when music was beginning to be dominated by a lot of bands who the, the members had come out of the musical academy or you know Mm -hmm. things like yes bands like yes and emerson lake and palmer it's time to strip all that down if you compare keith emerson's work with the nice and emerson lake and palmer you know the the nice had a kind of a bit of a raw and a bit of a punk attitude him like stabbing the keyboard with knives and Mm -hmm. all these things that Emerson, Lincoln Palmer just was pomp and circumstance, so to speak. Yeah. Not that they didn't re- record some fabulous music, but it was, it was all, you know, technique was really essential to do that. And when I met Jonathan Richmond, I, I had not really thought I was going to end up being a professional musician, but when I met Jonathan, I put his music in a movie. And so I was listening to this music I w- had recorded over and over again. And it was sort of started to recognize and Ernie Brooks and I lived together and he, Ernie would hear it through the walls or we'd listen mm-hmm. together. Jonathan has started to come over and I'm going, well, you know, there's nothing in the world like this right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. This is important and this is, this is unique and, mm-hmm. it de- and the world deserves to hear this. You know, it, th- those are still really fun songs they to, are. to perform. I mean, a lot of times if I get up and play with people, 
will do one of those songs. It's um, great. It's timeless. Sounds yeah, fantastic. and I also think that you know it's you know for Jonathan I think it's you know some of the lyrics on some of the songs he would be you know they so catch a sort of teenage angst he wouldn't feel comfortable or he wouldn't or or particularly he wouldn't feel the connection anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know I know what a challenge it must have been for Chuck Berry for his, the rest of his life to play songs that he'd written in mm. his. Tw- <laughs> right, yeah. and no one ever to be interested in anything new he'd done from that point on. Yeah, I mean, I mean, a a blessing because he made a nice living doing it, mm-hmm. and b a complete curse. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I've seen Jonathan live a few times. He's just the best. It's just him and his buddy, and the it's so odd. He's so odd, but it's so odd in an endearing, nice way. You just root for the guy. But yeah, he never goes back and plays Modern Lovers songs well, in these shows. Actually, if you would get the record we just did, we did a new version of Old World. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, the old world may be dead. Our parents can't understand. But I still have parents. And I still love the old world. I had a New York girlfriend And she couldn't understand How I could still have parents And still love the old world So I told her I want to keep my place in the old world And keep my place in the arcane Cause I Nice. At the Rock Morton Theater. So, 
where we played this new music. His wife plays the Indian instrument, the tambour. And so that, it's this very, uh, talk about cultural and uh, <laughs> Right. It, it, it's, uh, he's really influenced. He was, he's been actually studying with Terry Riley. Oh. And who has made him really, really dig into microtonal scales. All this stuff that you is so far afield from what the original Modern Lovers were about. Yeah. And, and so he and he so he writes songs, you know, I mean he sings songs in Hebrew, Spanish, Italian, mm-hmm. French, Hindi. So we did one song in Hindi. That was a po- like a poem, you know, these things of course that had been passed down for generations without being written down, so you don't know really how accurate yeah. the translation is or anything. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I had no idea. Okay, I'll look it out, or I'll seek it out. Um, it's called Sa S A. Okay. It's the record, and Sa. it's really good. Okay, I'll check it out. Also, um, really oh, yeah. weird. So, I believe it. <laughs> you know, so if you're kind of getting bored by the music you've been listening to, this will be a, f- a breath of fresh air. <laughs> oh, that's great. Okay. I did want to throw out, I was hoping to get to a bunch of your production work, but I want to at least touch on two things. One is live and one is general public. I'll let you pick whichever one you want to talk to first. Live, it seems like, was one of your most long-standing relationships. You produced Mental Jewelry and then, of course, Throwing Copper, which was a cultural event, you know? Huge, huge album, and deservedly so. White Discussion is one of my favorite songs ever. How did this happen and you know how did you how did you figure out how to make the live be their best well how it happened was gary kerfer's talking heads manager started a record company radioactive and i think phil schuster who worked for radioactive was the first to see live and fell in love with them and got gary to see them and then gary called me um, and said, there's this band who I think is really good, and if you like them and want to produce them, I'll sign them. Mm. So I went down to the 930 Club, the old 930 Club in Washington, and saw them perform. I think I probably treated them to dinner, too. Mm-hmm. I thought they were great. Yeah. And I said, well, what are you doing now? And 
She said, well, we're driving back to York. And I said, well, I'll go with you. So I climbed into, like, probably, I don't know, I might have had to lie on top of the equipment. I'm not sure how, you know, <laughs> like it was all, you know, you know, I think Matt Gracie at least was there as a roadie. So there were at least six of us in this van with their equipment. And I said, well, you know, I, they knew that radio, a radioactive had sent me. And I said, I think this is great. I think we should do this. And I'm not even sure if we didn't have a rehearsal the next day and started working on a song. And, I, and they go, well, when would you want to do this? And I said, how about in two weeks? Mm. And they, were, they had other offers from other companies, and, which may have been more lucrative for all I know. But I think that the, like, let's go do it exact right now, mm. was... Well, as a musician, that's the kind of thing you want to hear. It's like you know, you've been you've been creating music for maybe your whole life, writing a group of songs. The last thing you want is like, okay, well, we can fit this into the schedule in six months or something like that, you know. So the immediacy of it, and so this was when I was spending time in Milwaukee, and so they came to Milwaukee to do mental jewelry because I could get such a fair. Mm. I also thought the engineer, there's an engineer there named David Vartanian who was extremely talented. And I found really inexpensive housing for them where they all had their own rooms and they got free breakfast. And I think, I don't know, it was $500 a month or something. <laughs> right. So, I mean, so we made, you know, we made the, the first record and the EP $35,000. I mean, it was very cost-effective. Mm -hmm. Then we, you know, we, we started rehearsals, and I started working with them on the arrangements of their songs, and a number of their songs didn't have bridges, which I kind of mm. thought they needed. So we would write bridges and find ways to create, you know, extra drama in the songs. Mm. And then when Throwing Copper came around, I think there was sort of an assumption that we would do it together again. So we once again had, I went down to York for rehearsals, which is right in the middle of making the talk, the Crash Test Tommy has album. Once there was this kid who got into an accident and caught and come to school, but we finally came back his hair had turned from black into bright white he said that it was from when the cousin smashed so
somewhat alienated me from them because we were supposed to have this long weekend off, and then they wanted want, someone wanted to work, and I said I can't. Anyway, so we went down and finished writing a bunch of songs, and interestingly, Gary Kerfers didn't think think it was anywhere near as strong as Mental Jewelry to begin with. Mm, really. And, so I put together a tape of what I considered the songs we would do, which included things they'd already recorded, but then a whole bunch of new, you know, we set up basically in this club down there, the Chameleon in uh, Lancaster, and just, you know, kind of recorded stereo uh, versions of songs. And I put together, I said, I think this is what the record is. And then we had, and so then the next thing was, well, where are we going to record? And I said, well, wherever we go, I want you to be able to drive there. Mm. I don't want anyone, I don't want any rented cars. Mm. And I don't want anyone to feel like if they want to get away from the studio or, or each other, to feel, you know, somebody else took the car and they're trapped. So I want, you know, mm-hmm. we ended up picking Pachyderm up in Minneapolis, outside of Minneapolis, which is where... Nirvana had just done in utero. Oh, wow. And there is a similarity in the drum sound between those two records, too. Hmm. And hear the room, the similarity. Yeah, I'll have to listen to, back to that. Yeah, and so anyway, and we went up there, and but we had had rehearsals in Milwaukee, uh, which is sort of was halfway from York to Minneapolis. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then... You know, they were familiar with Milwaukee, having just made mental jewelry there, so it was fine. Okay. And then we and then we went up there, and then we mixed it in Lake Geneva, which is where Adrian was. Uh, we started by the guy who Lou Giordano, who they wanted they wanted to bring in as the engineer, who was a fabulous person to work work mm. for. Mm. There was a funny story: is that they had this beautiful old Neve up at Pagaderm, and Lou walked in, and he. The first day he goes, something. He goes this, and he look. He, he asked them to take out one of the modules, and he goes, "This is wired backwards." <laughs> so, the first day, he was rewiring their board, and like the owner comes down, you know, he's just paid this small fortune, you know, where a tech has gone through everything, and he goes, "What is going on here?" And he goes, and Lou goes, "Oh, this is." It's wired wrong. I'm fixing it. And, you know, he's like, he he is, you know, nearly apoplectic and doesn't really know what to do. But then he had to admit it did sound better. Mm. Okay. But once we got going, the recording went very smoothly and very quickly. Good. And Ed is such a remarkable singer. Yeah. And so prepared is that he... We would take two or three takes. And we, we got that. Yes, there yeah. you go. Wow. Amazing. And, um, I brought in Tom Lord Algae then because I didn't feel that the mixes we were getting by ourselves with Lou were, were strong enough. I mean, one of the things that was an innovation, at least this is what Steve Lillywhite told me, is that I was one of the first people to start making like alternative records where top-of-the-line mixers mix the entire record. Right. And so I would build budgets that had to save money throughout the record so as to be able to afford that. 
as well as getting to know all of these mixers and then negotiating a block rate because they were going to get to do 12 songs in a row. Mm -hmm. And of course they could move more quickly because it was, you know, there were similarities. Same drums recorded in the same rooms, you know. Yeah. A lot of things that made their process quicker that had reached the point where mixers got a point on a record. So mm. it, it, it financially worked out for everybody. Good, and, good. Okay. Tell me about General Public. Rub yeah, It Better. I love that album. I love them. I had Ranking Roger on here a few years ago. delightful guy he, he's such a joyous guy and uh i mean he smokes a lot of pot i, I just remember talking to him and i said like no roger i don't want any i said i think it kind of messes with my memory he goes oh me too man but it's a small price to pay for all the joy it gives me <laughs> oh that's great yeah oh, that's great and, uh, Young Cannibals, actually, by then, too. Yeah. And uh, another unbelievable band. I mean... No kidding. I had uh, questions about that one, too. Yeah. And so we did that here in San Francisco over in Richmond, again, at a very inexpensive studio. That was that was a, that was a difficult record to make, as it worked yeah, out. Uh, that's Dave, what he said. Dave's father got sick. Then Dave had to go over, and then he came back, and then his father died, and then he flew back to England. There was upheaval in mm -hmm. the process, and what I th we all thought would go quite quickly and smoothly actually took a, a very long time. And Dave was very picky about his vocals, so we did just an incredible number of vocals. Really? Oh, man. And that was supposed to be kind of their big comeback, you know? They had had I'll Take You There on the threesome soundtrack, and finally they're coming back together, and here's the proof, and it just sort of fell flat in a way. I don't know if maybe they didn't want to do it, ultimately. They weren't ready. They weren't good enough friends again. Problems arose like before, but it just uh, it's unfortunate that that album gets lost because I think it's fantastic. I, 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 I would agree with that. You know, I think that... That, that personal life started to um, impact the ability of, of the bands working mm -hmm. together. Making the record was 
was was painful and difficult. I broke three ribs, Ooh. and court player, uh, I don't know, broke his ankle falling off of like an electrified scooter. We passed <laughs> each other on gurneys in the hospital. <laughs> That's terrible, and, um, uh, and that's and that and that sort of sums up the difficulty of the record. I mean, yeah. I, there's no reason to to go into the, the, all the details of it, but in the end, it was a really good record. So. Yeah, I agree. Um, it, it was work. It was real work. Yeah, it sounds like it. I didn't realize that you were involved with the Raw and the Cooked, the Fine Young Cannibals album. Uh, until getting ready to talk to you. And and the liner notes, I have the CD, the liner notes aren't exactly clear. It kind of makes it, you can't really tell who did what on there. But did you rec- did you produce that whole album? What did you do? I wish I did, but I produced Ever Fallen In Love. Just ah, that okay. So 
he was very familiar with a the techniques of disco recording and exactly what Madonna was doing, including the players that she used in L.A. So we did that version, which is the beginning of their being them being very influenced by well everything from Prince to being uh, you know to Madonna to yeah. You know, that that was a challenge because Roland, I remember one time said to me, he goes like, you know, I just have trouble doing this song that I didn't write the lyrics to. And that's like I said, well, Roland, you perform it every, I know you perform this every night on a tour. Right. <laughs> I think that you can channel. The rest of the record was produced by David Z. That's what I thought. Okay. From, uh, who was working on a Paisley Park. Okay. And I'm very happy that I was included on that record. Yeah. But I do think that I was the beginning of that of them moving in that style. It sounds like it. Yeah, you're right. Um, well, Jerry, I could do this for hours. You've done so much stuff. I mean, every, every song you've worked on deserves an hour, let alone the album and the band and the period and all that stuff. You're, you know this. You're behind music that has changed the world. And so thank you for all the good you've put out in this world. I'm so grateful. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you very much. All right. There you have it. Jerry Harrison, the legend himself. And uh, what better to close this out with than Once in a Lifetime? One of the most important singles in history of one of the most important albums in history. And uh, once again, please check out the Talking Heads out albums. Jerry Harrison's solo stuff, the red and the black is so good. The albums he's produced from other people, there's just tons to wrap your brain around. The stuff is so good. And let's hope that things clear up quickly so that Jerry and Adrian can get back on tour and we can see this amazing album performed the way Jerry thinks it should be done. Thank you, Jerry, for talking with us. And thanks everybody for supporting us for five years. I cannot believe that, five years. Uh, next week, I'm not, well, next week, I think I'm going to be, I think we're going to run an interview I did recently with the front man for one of, one of those great British alternative rock bands of the late eighties, early nineties. I love this band. And if you are, if you were paying attention to all, uh, alternative radio or college radio in the eighties and the nineties, you know, this band, especially if you had a, you know, an anglophilic, uh, tendency like I did. Now, huge thanks, as always, to our right-hand man, Jan the Man of Makevich. Thank you, buddy, for being my partner for almost five years on this and for doing this with me and for your fantastic work and, and uh, focus and effort to producing these great episodes. You guys know what to do by now. You can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We opened up the Patreon page recently. I've got the, the link to it right here in the show notes of the show in the description. There has been a delay. I was planning on giving away those Ted, Te well, the Greg Renoff books of Ted Templeman, the producer, and they got delayed. I think they were coming from Canada and there was a problem. They are still coming, but they have been delayed somewhere. So I will get those out to you as quickly as I can. I do have two record albums from a band, one of my favorite bands that we covered last year. Uh, that I want to give away. I just need to figure out, I'm trying to, I didn't want to bombard you, so I've been waiting for these books. Anyway, if you are a Patreon member, 
the lowest tier, $2, puts you in the running to to win any swag that we are offering. And so get on the page, join Patreon, $2 a month, set it and forget it, and you can win either the Ted Templeman book, one of the record albums, or one of the other things that we're going to get our hands on to give away. Okay? Thanks, everybody. We love you. Thanks so much for five great years.